My name is Matt. And I'm Sierra. And this is going to be the first episode of a podcast series that we're doing called Monkey Business. And we're going to be talking about primates and what it's like to be in a PhD program. And we go to school at Georgia State, currently starting our second year as a PhD student. And we both study sociality in non-human primates. And when I say sociality, I think it encompasses a range of things, including cooperation, inequality, response to inequality, mm-hmm. and... But then also like things like decision-making and also the co- cognition behind it too. I mean, it is a right. psychology PhD after all. That's true. Both Sierra and I are um, mentored by Dr. Sarah Brosnan, um, whose work probably most famously has to do with responses to an equity aversion. And there's been a lot of studies, but she's has her hand in lots of different kinds of research now. And she's just absolutely incredible. And I've learned so much from her over the past year. So shout out to uh, our advisor, of course. Um, So in undergrad, I actually did not work with primates. I studied uh, the geomagnetic sensing abilities in loggerhead sea turtles at UNC Chapel Hill. Specifically, I worked with Dr. Kenneth and Dr. Catherine Lohman. And we looked at sort of different experiments looking at their ability to navigate around the world, right? There's no uh, maps or landmarks in the ocean. So sea turtles actually use the magnetic fields to help kind of find and guide their way uh, around. It's kind of remarkable. It's so cool. It's so cool. I do miss working with those guys a little bit. But now I work with primates at uh, Georgia State at the Language Research Center. And kind of broadly, what I'm interested in is looking at right now, pro-social behavior. So my master's, which I'm set to propose soon, will involve studying hormones as well as pro-social behavior in a group setting. So that's going to be kind of cool. Prior to coming here, I actually went to school in California at UC Davis. Shout out to the Aggies. And I studied cognitive science and I got a job working with the rhesus monkeys at the California National Primate Research Center. And that's kind of how I started working with non-human primates and pretty much changed a lot of the trajectory of where I went after because now that's all I do. So I always had an interest in relationships in terms of like you know, why we have relationships, friendships, and all of these things. And I actually was able to work with a man named John Capitano. He did a lot of work on friendships in rhesus monkeys. So I think that kind of inspired me and made me realize that that was a field you could go into. And Mm -hmm. so I kept on that and it kind of propelled me into what I am hoping to study now I'm hammering it out a little bit right now, but it's kind of this idea that, you know, everybody's different in their own way. And I kind of want to see how individual variation specifically changes the way we interact with each other Mm -hmm. in different tasks, like cooperative tasks or our response to inequity, things like that. But anyways, just to kind of give a little bit of a uh, summary about what we do is we're two PhD students. We came into the same lab together. We're mentored by the same person. It's going to be a research PhD, and we work specifically with tufted capuchin monkeys at Georgia State, and we research anything from their cognition to their hormonal correlates to their behavior, and we're just super excited to kind of give our little insight as we're going through the process for anybody who wants to 
learn about what being in a research PhD is like, but also maybe just wants to tune in and learn about primates because there's hundreds and hundreds of species out there. And uh, some of them are quite exotic, quite surprising, and quite incredible. And unfortunately, a lot of them are in critical uh, danger of becoming extinct. So we want to use this platform to really reach a broad audience, kind of reach on maybe hopefully even a national scale. So people all across the country can hear about these different kinds of primates that maybe they've never heard about, but also to, you know, for those who are interested in becoming a future researcher and want to know what it's like and what we deal with. And from anything from housing to reading research articles to doing research and dealing with the everyday life of what it is like to be a PhD student. So without further ado, I guess we'll go ahead and get into our first episode. Hi, everybody. This is Sierra. And this is Matt. And welcome to Monkey Business, your favorite podcast about primates and PhDs. Today we'll be talking about an endangered mile-high primate with some very odd food preferences, native to the mountainous regions of China with some very unique facial features. So today we'll be talking about the black snub-nosed monkey. So before we discuss the black snub-nosed monkey, I did want to talk to you, Sarah, because you've recently achieved a great life goal of purchasing your own house. Do you want to tell me a little bit about um, why you made that decision and how that process has been? Yeah, so it's been quite a unique experience. Um, and I definitely didn't imagine myself probably ever buying a house, to be honest, <laughs> or at least not until I was like uh, 60 years old. But we figured uh, since we were going to be living here for at least another five, four or five years, mm-hmm. um, might as well see if we can make a more permanent option for housing. And, you know, instead of uh, paying a landlord money every month, it would be nice to put some money and invest back in ourselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, I decided, well, we decided that that would pe- probably be the best idea for us. Um, and then... It turns out that mortgage payments and all of your monthly payments when it comes to buying a house can sometimes be cheaper, at least in the area that we're in, which is Atlanta, can be a little bit cheaper, if not the same as renting a house. Yeah, so so why not invest in yourself and then be able to get a return on your investment? Whereas if you're paying rent, you're unfortunately throwing that money away in a lot of ways. You'll never see it again. Yeah, exactly. So it's like instead of paying someone else's mortgage, we can pay our own. Um, but we are also first time home buyers. So if someone is looking to buy a house, I would really suggest looking into like first time home buyer programs because that can be really helpful with lower payments or lower down payment, which is probably the hardest. Yeah, the hardest uh, obstacle for someone in our uh, in a PhD program probably yeah, to, to exactly overcome. Because we are on a, on a budget, we do live a little bit farther from like campus. I mean, the good thing is, at least where you are now, and this is obviously going to be different for everybody's PhD program, depending on what they do. Um, 
you are actually not that far away from the primate research facility where we house um, the capuchins that we work with. So that's no, nice. Luckily, we're not. And I actually tried to choose an area that was close to the MARTA. I can actually walk to MARTA from here. Oh, nice. So, oh, and from here, we are currently at the house. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I can actually walk from the MARTA. So that's been really nice, which MARTA is like the public transportation and takes you straight to campus. And that was one of the top things that we were looking for because we wanted it to be convenient for to be able to get to class and traveling and, 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 and office and stuff. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. It's, uh, I think that is such a cool, unique way to do it. Especially because you're right, in a lot of places nowadays with rent prices going up higher and higher, you can probably find some places um, where you can have a mortgage payment that is sometimes even cheaper than rent. And then mm-hmm. you'll actually get a return on that, at least to some point. I mean, obviously, you're paying a yeah. lot of that to interest and um, to taxes and all that kind of stuff. But right. it's good to it's kind of a good option if you if you can afford it to maybe consider it, especially because. Um, if you're in a PhD program, chances are you're going to be there at least five years, maybe longer. And so, uh, why not put those five years of rent payments into a property that you're investing in? So one thing though, that I had thought about was, you know, we've been talking to people that are further along in the program and things are so up in the air and what they're going to do after they finish. Like, for example, one of our lab mates owns a house and she's, you know, was contemplating, what do we do with the house when we leave? Do we sell it? Do we try and rent it out or you know what if the market's not good to sell it at that time you're gonna lose money who knows what's gonna happen and so there are like some risks involved as well but it's just like any other investment there's always risk involved in an investment but property at least uh for the most part you know knock on wood um but it's usually a good investment so and I know nice. you sit you told me once that on Wednesdays you sit and uh, do some stock trading every now oh. and then. I do. I do do some <laughs> stock trading. I'm, I'm decent, uh, but it's, uh, it's been a little while. I've, the past couple months have been a little bit more financially straining, so I don't put as much money into the market. But uh, I'm sure one day we'll talk about the research of the behavioral economics that we can research in primates, and maybe we'll uh, talk about my stock profile. But I know I, <laughs> it's not, it's meager at best. Trust me. <laughs> I know sometimes I'm like reading some of these papers, and uh, I see some of these. Uh, um, there's like this effect that happens when you like don't want to get rid of the stuff that you have because you think it's worth so much more. And I'm like reading and I'm thinking about this stock that just keeps going negative and I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is totally me right now. <laughs> yeah, I will admit I was caught up in the AMC game stock phenomenon. Um, and while I gained money on some, there were others that I decided to bite the bullet and sell. Um, <clears throat> cough, cough, AMC, which then decided a week later to skyrocket. No. Um, so yeah, I ended up biting a loss on that one and just been like, you know what? I'm not getting my money back. This whole game stock thing is over. Let me just cut my losses. And sure enough, a week later, I think it was up. I sold it, I think it at $26 and, and the stocks were up to like $50. No. Like, oh, what a, what a shame. But you know what? Live and learn, right? Never invest anything in the stock market. You're not willing to lose. That's what I've always heard. So Yeah. Well, anyways, um, moving on from here, um, speaking of 
homes and habitats, we're actually going to be talking about a monkey that lives in a particularly special habitat. So Sarah, if you want to kick us off. Yeah. So the black snub-nosed monkey is a very under-researched primate, mostly due to their low population numbers and the difficulty navigating their natural habitat. It is found in very remote areas of the Hangduan Mountains. Yeah, I think that's how I would say it too. Hangduan. We might uh, mispronounce things in this uh, podcast. It happens. (laughs) Especially names of places that we've never been. And these mountains are between the Mekong and the Yangtze rivers. Um, What makes this primate so unique is the elevation of its habitat. Many primates climb trees, but no tree matches the elevation of these guys. You see, the snub-nosed monkeys live in the highest recorded elevations for non-human primates, which ranges between 2,600 and 4,700 meters. Just for reference, Mount Everest is about 8,800 meters tall. So in some cases, they're halfway up to the top of Mount Everest. In their homes at the top of the world, the snub-nosed monkeys live in three broad habitat types. The dark coniferous forest, mixed coniferous and broadleaf forest, and the Yunnan pine forests. Nice. You know, Sierra, it is cool that they live up at such a high elevation, but can we take a second to talk about what they look like? Because they are quite distinct. They are a type of rhinopithecines monkey, which is just a genus that consists of five different species. In all five species, the features that stick out to me the most are the nose and the lips. The nostrils are kind of open looking, I know that's what nostrils are supposed to be, but, you know, like imagine you're looking at a human skull and you see those two nose holes on the human skull. Well, that's kind of exactly what their faces look like. So there's these two wide holes flat on their face, I guess kind of like Voldemort in a little bit of ways. Scientifically, this nose is described as a diminutive nose with upturned nostrils, and it's probably where the snub-nosed monkey got their name. The lips also are unique. They are really big and light pink. And to be honest, it kind of looks like these monkeys had one too many lip filler treatments. <laughs> it's true. Um, I've actually heard some people call this the Michael Jackson monkey because it looks oh. like after after closer to the end of his poor life that he uh, he had a lot of plastic surgery. Mm. I, you know, looking at these guys, I can definitely see that. Other than their distinct facial features, though, those which which are present in all of the rhinopithecines genus, the black snub-nosed monkey more specifically is sexually dimorphic, which you'll hear us use that term a lot in this podcast. It simply means that the males and females differ in some form or fashion in their appearance, and it's usually in size and weight. In this species, females are about half the size of the males. A typical male weighs about 15 kilograms, which because I'm bad at conversions, is about 33 pounds. Males have a dark crown on their head that forms like a forward drooping crest, and their faces are bare around the nose, eyes, and mouths with longer white hair toward the periphery of their heads. The hair on their body is long, so it's much longer than I'd say most primates, um, and it consists of black, gray, and white patterning. Female and immature males are not as dark, and their hair is often shorter on the thighs, back, and on that crown of the head. Um, Also, because you know baby monkeys are adorable, uh, infants are born a solid white color, and they will slowly turn yellowish before eventually turning gray as they get older. Per usual for primates, the infants are really cute. 
I don't know if actually there's this picture that's been surfacing around and there's like this little monkey, a little white fluff ball sitting on a branch. But that's actually one of these monkeys. Oh, really? I have seen that picture, actually. Um, And as for their diet, these guys are quite unique as well, which is as to be expected, though, given that they live three miles above sea level. They rely heavily on immature leaves of monocots and dicots in the spring, fruit for summer and autumn. Okay, wait. So that doesn't sound that atypical for primates, though, right? Yeah, but... They are unique because in the winter, they rely mostly on lichen. Lichens, if you're not familiar, are actually a complex organism that is the result of a symbiotic relationship between plants and fungi. You've probably seen these fibrous organisms hanging on the sides of trees, and they kind of resemble moss. Uh, They likely consume so much lichen because lichen grow in abundance in these mountainous regions and make for a reliable year-round food supply. Lichen, though, are toxic to most animals, but the black and white snub-nosed monkey have specialized digestive enzymes that remove the harmful bacteria. Ah, okay. So I think something like that is similar in cows. Ah, that's right. Nevertheless, despite their odd appetite for lichens, they are dietary differences between groups depending on where they live and what foods are available, which, I mean... It makes sense. So, for example, in the Saimang forest, the black snub nose prefers fruits, whereas those in the more northern regions, such as a place called Uyapia, and I know I'm pronouncing that wrong. I'm sorry about that. They are found to have more lichen in their diet. All right. So you've told us what they eat, but how exactly do they find their food, especially given that they live up in these mountains? Well, the ranging patterns for the black snub-nosed monkey have been described as semi-nomadic. Kind of like you when you're moving from apartment to apartment every year. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Um, Except my band only consists of me and my dog and my cats. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, don't forget Oliver out there. (laughs) And Oliver. (laughs) Um, But these bands range over long areas. uh, And bands are usually, if you're not familiar, these groups of semi-nomadic primates are usually called bands. So the bands of snub-nosed monkeys will range over large areas, leaving after an area is foraged to seek new areas. Most groups have different seasonal distributions or visit patches of known seasonal fruit abundance, which begs an interesting research question about their spatial memory. Bands also move daily and seasonally in response to environmental variables, such as temperatures, which, I mean, I can see. Yeah, I imagine that's pretty important given their tough terrain of their uh, homelands. Now, okay, you're going to find this as we talked on the podcast. I'm terrified of heights, but do they live in trees or do they prefer the ground? Or actually, do they even have trees that high? (laughs) Well, actually, they do. And they're primarily arboreal. So, They use the ground to get around, especially in like those alpine habitats that are above the tree line. Um, And adult males being heavier are much more terrestrial than females. All right. Well, I'm right there with the males then, because if I'm already three miles above sea level, there is no need for me to do any sort of climbing. That's just asking for a really far fall. Okay. I do have a question, though. You had mentioned it earlier. You were talking about bands. 
Can you do a little bit more describing about what these bands are and like how the monkeys group themselves? Yeah, of course. They actually have a, a two-tiered grouping system. The first tier is called a band, which consists of 480 individuals. Um, bands are further broken down into family groups, which have about 3 to 17 individuals. Sometimes these family units will consist of one male units. So immigration of another male into a band often elevates the frequency of male aggression. I should note here, too, that copulations happen all year round, but there does seem to be mating birthing seasons. Mating has higher occurrences between August and October, followed by peak birth seasons around March and April. Uh, one fun fact I found, like most primates, the snub-nosed monkeys give birth at night, making it difficult for research to observe, but a rare occurrence happened and there was an observation of a daytime birth and they saw that multiple females were assisting another female in the birthing process. So kind of like a midwife, but for monkeys. Yeah, exactly. And the researchers actually speculated on that too, coming to that same conclusion. Oh, interesting. I imagine that would be deemed a pro-social behavior, giving helping them give birth. So um <laughs> Which is <laughs> a little plug, shameless plug for my research topics. But um, so anyways, well, okay. So as you guys know, we're actually both psychology PhDs. So I was curious if you could also tell us a little bit more about their behavior. So that's where I kind of mentioned there's not a lot of research on these monkeys in particular. And much of that research in terms of behavior is lacking. Okay. So is that, I imagine that's because they live up in the mountains and people like me don't really want to go climbing up that high. <laughs> yeah, that's more than likely the reason that we have limited knowledge on their behavior. But here is what we do know. First, we know grooming does occupy a good amount of their time, but the amount of grooming depends on the band's geographical location. Some bands may travel or forage more, which would result in less opportunities to rest and groom. Females groom and are groomed more than the males and spend more time grooming and in close proximity to other males, but males also get pampered too. The juveniles, on the other hand, groom and are groomed less than the adults, which I would say that that's pretty opposite of a lot of other primate species. You'll see that the juveniles and the infants are groomed sometimes the most. Yeah, I agree with that. But I couldn't find any information on which sex will typically emigrate out of the group when they reach sexual maturity. So I'm not exactly sure how the genetic relationship influences their grooming or affiliative behavior. For example, like, do siblings groom each other more? Don't really know. But that could be an avenue of future research. Matt, would you want to go up to the mountains and collect some DNA? Uh, I'm going to say no. Uh, thank you. But I like being as close to sea level as possible. I'm sure there's probably not a lot of, uh, you'd have to like camp up in those forests too. It's a very unpopulated remote region of the world. So you're telling me that there's not some five-star hotel that I could also stay at. Yeah. This does not <laughs> sound like something I want to do, but thank you. But no, thank you. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. That's fine. I could see your point. But I do want to end on a final note, and that's the species conservation status, because it is important that we use this platform to bring awareness to endangered and threatened species. Currently, 
these little guys are, or big guys, they're actually pretty big, are listed as endangered. Believe it or not, they were actually believed to be extinct because no observations were reported for quite some time after the original description. But nearly 70 years later, eight skins were obtained from hunters in the Dequin County of Yunnan. And so they assumed that, you know, there must be some population. Yeah, that if they some got hunters getting skins some, from. Yeah, if some hunters bringing back skins, they're obviously up there. Right. And since then, the government in those regions have progressively added more protected reserves to help the mountains for these unique creatures. The total population of the black snub-nosed monkeys recovered from about 800 in 1986 to about 1,700 individuals in uh, 2002. And based on surveys conducted in 2016, the population in Tibet and Yunnan are now over 3,500 individuals. Although their population is increasing, there is some evidence to suggest that their population is reaching carrying capacity for those reserves. Development and human industries are slowly encroaching on their habitats, which severely limits the number of monkeys that can survive. And one thing I do want to mention is these reserves are actually quite fragmented, which is part of the reasons why they are reaching those carrying capacities within those particular reserves because they're not all connected. Which I imagine, you know, if these habitats are going to be fragmented, you're going to get less mixing of different genetics, which could cause the genetic diversity to absolutely plummet. Um, what about in captive populations? Are there anything, are there any captive populations of these monkeys? Um, there is actually some captive breeding programs and both of these are located in China and they have small populations of this species. And those are the Kunming Zoo and the Kunming Institute of Zoology. And they have some programs to try and grow this population through captive breeding programs, just in case, you know, things take a turn for the worst in the wild, I guess. Yeah. That's always good to have um, zoos that do that. And you guys will hear we talk about this a lot with a lot of different species of primates that especially the ones that are endangered or threatened that a lot of zoos will have breeding programs so that if they ever get lost in the wild, they have a population that is breeding and healthy so that we can potentially reintroduce them into the wild and save a species from extinction. So, well, I think that's all that there is out there about these primates. So um, I will say it's pretty cool. Um, it's crazy to think that they live and thrive at such high elevations. I would not want to live up there, but these interesting looking monkeys that love to feed on uh, lichens uh, is one of the many species of primates we're going to touch on. And and I, I think that was a, a good first episode for everything. Yeah. This episode was written and directed by Sierra Simmons and Matthew Babb of Georgia State University and edited by Oliver Eddy. We want to give a special thanks to Oliver for all his work in editing and assisting with sound production. And we will see you guys again next week for another episode of Monkey Business. Monkey Business.